when you hear certain things in the news, the echoes are very clear if you know what to look for. There are real legacies that come from this eugenic moment. From the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, this is Colloquy. I'm Paul Massari. This year, GSAS marks the 150th anniversary of its founding in 1872. In the months ahead, we'll celebrate this milestone on Colloquy by bringing you some of the school's most remarkable alumni and students speaking about their research and how it relates to issues like public health, gun violence, democracy, and much more. We're starting with a topic that triggers strong reactions from people throughout our society, maternal health and reproductive rights. A victory for white life. That's how Illinois Congresswoman Mary Miller described the Supreme Court decision overturning the constitutional right to an abortion at a rally with former President Donald Trump last June. Miller, who had quoted Hitler in a previous speech, later said that she had meant to say, right to life. Jamie Marcella, a burgeoning historian of science, says that, in historical terms, Miller's distinction doesn't make much difference. Looking back over a century to the progressive era, she finds that maternal and reproductive health policy were driven by racial imperatives. President Theodore Roosevelt, for instance, saw declining birth rates among white people as the country's greatest problem, and spoke publicly about, quote, race suicide, unquote. Jamie Marcella is a current PhD student at GSAS in the history of science. She earned her master's degree in social science from the University of Chicago and is the recipient of the New York Academy of Medicine Paul Klemperer Fellowship in the History of Medicine. Her work has been published in the journal Nature and the New Mexico Historical Review. She joins us today to discuss the American ideal of motherhood, its history, and echoes in the Dobbs decision and renewed wrangling over reproductive freedom. Jamie Marcella, welcome to Colloquy. Thank you. I'm curious about abortion in American history. Were abortion and contraception big issues before the Progressive Era? For most of United States history before the late 19th century, abortion and contraception, which in many places and times were sort of understood to be about the same thing, um, they were very commonly practiced, um, perhaps not as commonly discussed, um, but very frequently practiced, um, not really stigmatized. And I think something to keep in mind is the religious element of anti-abortion sentiment is really not a part of the conversation, um, even in, you know, the the first wave of criminalization of abortion in the late 19th um, and early 20th centuries. That is about fears of race suicide, white supremacy, um, concerns about overpopulation of, of you know, the quote-unquote undesirable people versus, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And in that regard, religion is sort of conflated with race and ethnicity um, more than it is about any sort of theological belief. Um, and then later, uh, that changes. And one of the reasons why this changes, which I think gets to your question, is because technology changes. So um, for most of United States history, um, before the 19th century, you know, pregnancy tests didn't exist. Um, there was very little 
um, evidence for a pregnancy before um, what they would call the quickening, all right? Because, of course, people would start stop menstruating for various reasons. Um, it was not – you were not assumed to be pregnant until you felt the quickening, which means, you know, when the, the fetus is moving inside the uterus and you can feel that. And so for – up until that point in the pregnancy, um, you know, you could be bringing on the menses, quote-unquote. You know, there were different – herbal remedies or things that you could do that would do that. And that was not really a stigmatized practice. Um, but as technology develops, of course, you can begin to develop rhetoric about the right to life. Um, you can start arguing about the role of the fetus in a much more specific way. And so like we're seeing now debates about viability, um, those debates are becoming more and more complicated and difficult to argue because, of course, we have technology that can keep a fetus alive earlier and earlier and earlier. And that is a very different conversation than one about, you know, a woman's autonomy and bodily choice and, and health decisions. And so those sorts of conversations get very complicated very quickly because of this technology and the way that we're understanding fetal life in the first place. It's very, very different from the time that I'm looking at in the progressive era where there was no way to validate a pregnancy that early in a, in a pregnancy at all. Is the progressive era or a short time before it really the first time that uh, abortion becomes criminalized in a widespread way? In the United States, yes. The first, you know, it goes state by state sort of starting in the late 19th century. By 1910, I believe, um, it's criminalized across the country. And this is directly in response to fears over specifically um, Catholic reproduction and the idea that there was this increase of Catholic immigrants. They were reproducing um, so much more than quote-unquote, desirable Anglo-Protestant Anglo women. Um, and so that if this was to continue over time, they would overtake. Um, you know, it sounds a little bit like the great replacement theory that we hear in the news today is, is that they will overtake the country. And so these laws were designed to um, prevent Anglo-American, Anglo-Protestant women from, you know, deferring child-bearing um, for um going to college or, you know, to defer families at all uh, as they s sort of start their careers. Um, these laws were very concerned with that and, and not really at all about sort of religion or, or fetal life. In some of your writings, you talk about the Republican ideal of motherhood. By that, you're not referring to the Republican Party. You're referring to, you know, Republican government. So, what is this notion? Where does it come from? When you talk about it in the United States context, uh, we're usually referring to an idea that came out of the revolutionary period. Um, and it's this idea that women were able to serve. They were absolutely essential to the democratic project that was coming out of the revolution because they were the ones who were birthing and raising um, the children who would become future citizens. So in this way, theoretically, um, woman could argue that they were absolutely crucial to the American project. Um, but of course, this has some very obvious drawbacks because they're asserting their worth to government to politics in their reproductive functions. And so what you see over time is that ultimately um, this logic is used to assert that, you know, women um, should be kept in what, you know, you hear often the, the private sphere. They're kept in domestic spaces. They should not be participating in public, political, economic life. Um, 
And also, of course, this is about very specific women, right? Because um, many historians have shown that um, most women had to work to sustain themselves and their families. And, you know, from the revolution until the end of the Civil War and, and later, um, women were forced to work because they were enslaved. So this only applied to a very specific group of privileged elite women. Um, but by the time you get to the late 19th century, the progressive era, these same women are, you know, arguing that they should be able to go to colleges, that they should be able to enter these elite professions. And so you see this idea um, linger but be transformed into a new understanding that because women are so uh, they're so uniquely maternal. They're so capable of, you know, cleaning up messes. They're capable of nurturing. Um, they should be allowed in certain capacities to enter the public space, um, you know, to do child welfare work or social work, um, you know, and that that is something that they're uniquely qualified to do. And so you see, you know, this rise of nurses and and doctors, public health professionals, social workers, settlement house workers. They're all using um what's understood as maternalism. Uh, they're using this understanding to justify their places in, you know, public, economic, and political life. You've alluded to xenophobia as a motivation for the concern around declining birth rates, right? Um, I wonder to what extent it was also a reaction to, for instance, the lead-up to women's suffrage? I think they're definitely related. Um, you know, often when you see um, feminist movements taking steam, you see a reciprocal backlash to the very feminist movement. We're seeing it now. We've always seen it. Um, and I think in part, you know, so much of what um, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt in the introduction and the concept of race suicide, and so much of that is grounded in this idea that these supposedly eugenic desirable women are not taking on the responsibility that they have, you know, biologically, naturally, whatever um, terminology that you, they wanted to use, but that they were they were shirking their responsibilities by pursuing feminist pursuits, by pursuing suffrage. They were stepping out of their place. Um, they weren't, they were so focused on, you know, the right to vote that they weren't thinking about the real role that they have in fostering the nation, in being this mother to future citizens. One of the frames for your research on the history of maternal health policy is this lens of eugenic maternalism. Can we just take a, a moment here to break down what what you mean by that um, and where you find it in this period. You've talked about it a little bit already. When people think of eugenics, they often associate it with World War II and Nazism. And so it's important to remember that eugenics has a very, um, a much longer life. Uh, it certainly is true that World War II and, and the atrocities of the Holocaust were deeply rooted in eugenics. But in this country and in Europe, um, Eugenics was very, very popular and very, very pervasive um, in many major institutions, uh, especially at the beginning of the 20th century through, um, and I and many others would argue, well into today. Um, and so the eugenic maternalists that I look at really prioritized what is often called positive eugenics. And this was the idea that rather than 
sterilize someone or um, laws that came later that would prevent different races from marrying each other or procreating. Um, They wanted to specifically create programs that would emphasize the right behaviors, the right practices, um, the right nutrition, the right sanitation that would allow the supposedly more fit to propagate, to pass on better traits to their children and to have, you know, a much more um, idealized lineage moving forward. How does eugenic maternalism play out in one organization you studied in depth, New York City's Babies Welfare Association? At its most basic, the Babies Welfare Association, I call it the BWA because it's quite mouthy. Um, the BWA was a organization that was created by the city's Bureau of Child Hygiene. And the Bureau of Child Hygiene itself was a subdivision of the Department of Health for the city of New York. And so... It's technically a government operation. Um, The government, the City Bureau of Child Hygiene, really served as a hub within the BWA. And then they solicited participation um, and collaboration from um, philanthropic and other private organizations in the city that did child care, um, maternity care. Um, So there were over 120 organizations. There were things like milk stations that offered um, poor women free or discounted milk that would be, you know, free— free of taint or tuberculosis, because that was a serious problem at the time. There were orphanages. There were day nurseries, um, which is basically a a child care center. There were organizations like the Visiting Nurses Association, where they would send nurses into different tenement homes to help aid with the sick or provide maternity care or do different studies. Metropolitan Life Insurance Company was a big part of this. They would create pamphlets on the the best practices for child rearing and child care um, and all sorts of different organizations that ended up making this up. And so the BWA is really fascinating to me because it's a great example to see how the government, which was so invested in a very particular standardized form of eugenic maternalism, they collaborated with, you know, um, the AMA, for instance, to make standardized scorecards that they would use for baby contests, which were like a very popular form of entertainment at the time, um, to make sure that people were doing everything exactly the same way and they were all getting their measurements taken. They were very focused on standardization, like many progressive era organizations were. Um, But then they're collaborating with all these different groups who had previously um, sometimes been quite fraught. uh, Their relationships were quite fraught with each other. And how to get these different groups to practice child care, maternity care, um, different forms of eugenic um, public health programming in this standardized similar way. And so the relationship between these different groups shows these ways that they're negotiating their own roles, particularly Catholic and Jewish organizations, because they're representing and really devoted to um, communities that were, you know, they were ethnic communities. They were white ethnic communities who would not have been considered um, eugenic by many people in um, the eugenic reform movement. And so figuring out what, um, whether or not a standardized eugenic program could accommodate Catholics and Jews and what that looked like and what Americanism looks like um, for all of these different groups is is a big part of their project. This is really a moment where public health bureaucracy, um, social welfare, the beginning of a welfare system, these things are all coming out of these movements, these organizations, these the key players within these organizations. And so it's essential to understand really what they were thinking and how they understood their work um, in the context of, yeah, eugenics. um, Because that has shaped um, the very foundations of many of our systems. Um, and that's why today, when you hear certain things in the news, the echoes are very clear if you know what to look for. Um, there are real legacies that come from this eugenic moment. 
And so it is, yeah, it's very difficult. Um, and I think one of the questions I get asked the most is, well, surely you're not mad that they're, you know, providing charity to these families. And it, no, but it's important that they understood that this charity would make this family um, become more American and American really as a proxy for a certain kind of white um, person in this country. And I think part of that is just recognizing that whiteness has been an unstable category um, and that American and being an American and what American means is also an unstable category. There's never really been one. And yet when I mention it, we all know what I'm talking about. And it's because of these sorts of programs that really emphasized and educated people very specifically to act a certain way, behave a certain way, look a certain way. Um, and that all came out of this this movement, in addition to many other movements, of course. But is that eugenics or is it cultural hegemony? Well, because it is specifically about reproduction and about um, child, because really the BWA, it's the Babies Welfare Association, it's specifically about encouraging women. Um, they did work with men and boys, but it was primarily about educating women on reproductive issues and child welfare issues and training them to be better mothers. Um, for instance, one of the um, the programs that I'm most fascinated by is this concept called the Little Mothers League. And this was the idea that um, these young girls, sometimes as young as eight years old, if their mothers were working, would be in charge of raising the younger children at home. And so the BWA um, basically was like, let's harness this power, right? Let's take these girls who are already raising children. We assume, of course, that they will be future mothers as well because that's their ultimate, you know, purpose. We're going to take them into these little clubs, kind of like Girl Scouts, and we're going to train them. We're going to bring in professionals and we're going to teach them how to, you know, care for baby. We're going to teach them how to become better mothers so that their children and the children they're currently raising, their siblings, will all be better citizens. And so this emphasis on child rearing, child bearing, that is deeply eugenic. Um, and the idea that they these girls could be rewarded for demonstrating their worthiness um, as childbearers, as someone who could recognize sort of the signs and symptoms of Americanness and then embody it in themselves, go home, teach their mother, you know, don't feed the baby pineapple, don't do this or that. Um, they could be sort of these little ambassadors of an American ideal that is also um, eugenic in nature. And so that, to me, is one of the best examples of this, the way that these sorts of ideas operated. It was like, let's go to the child. Let's get her while she's young. We'll train her to be this ideal mother. Um, and then she can impart for the future generations. But what's the genetic component to all this? So I should have said this earlier. <laughs> um, but at this time in, in particular, um, this is, you know, 1900 to about 1920, the Mendelian version of eugenics that we're most familiar with, that is specifically about heredity being passed on from generation to generation, sort of, you know, innate, unmutable, you know, not changeable, that had not really become the dominant form of eugenics. So at this particular time, there were competing ideas. And one of those ideas um, which I think had traction particularly in the eugenic maternalist capacity, is this idea that draws on Lamarck. Um, and it's basically that if you can improve um, the circumstances of someone today, their offspring will be improved. And then that would be, you know, that they would not only know how to raise their offspring better, but that they would have better physical health and circumstances and that the environment was just as important, if not more so, than heredity. And so for these women, you know, many of them were very explicit in saying, like, yeah, of course, it would be great if we could limit, you know, 
um, undesirable people from even being born, but they're here now. So we have to make them better. Um, we have to do what we can so that their children will be better than they will be and they will be better than they will be. And that's sort of the role that they were playing. And it wasn't clear at this time, um, and obviously this is not this is not accurate, but like it wasn't clear to them at this time um, that environment was more or less important than heredity. This was still sort of being debated. But for these women in particular, especially because they were justifying their own place um, as maternalist reformers who were drawing on their ability to ch- nurture and childcare, this idea that they could improve the environment and that that had really eugenic potential, um, that was really central to the argument that they were making. So let's bring it up to uh, to the present day. You know, I started off with that quote from Mary Miller, the congresswoman from Illinois. Um, to what extent do you see echoes of this eugenicism from earlier in the century in the loss of constitutional protections for reproductive health care from women and trans men? I think... It, the echoes are becoming screams um, in part. I, I do think, you know, we'll never know for sure if that was a slip up or not. You could uh, um, that quote about white life. But I think um, when you look at the record, because anti-abortion advocates have been chipping away at abortion rights since Roe was decided. And so this sudden call for social services um, to provide care for women and children, it's a little too late because <laughs> they've had 50 years to demonstrate their commitment to life, theoretically, by supporting a mandatory minimum w- or a federal living wage. Um, they've had opportunities to expand Medicaid coverage for pre- and postpartum women. They've had opportunities to do free lunches in schools or food st- all these different things that we know have effects on the reasons why people make the decision to get an abortion. Because we've seen the studies, not only from this country, but other countries where abortion has been illegal. We know that in this country in particular, women um, are most likely to get an abortion when they've already had children that they're worried about supporting because they're near or close to the poverty line um, and they're under or uninsured. And so there are, you know, so many things that could be done to prevent that. Um, And those things are particular sticking points for the Republican Party often. Um, In addition to things like preventing um, sex education in favor of abstinence, which research shows is ineffective, um, they are against, um, you know, or they often fight so that employers can um, decide whether or not they want to cover contraception in their employee health insurance. These different things that, like, would make very real contributions to limiting people's desire for abortions. Um, And we know that in places where abortion is legal, including in this country when it was, sorry, illegal, um, and in other countries, it doesn't prevent abortions. So if they were really committed to this cause, there are are many fact-based ways to do that. Um, And to me, as a historian, so much of that conservative resistance to expanding, you know, social services and the welfare state is in part because um, you have to understand that the the origins of our welfare state are grounded in this eugenic thinking. It was very much created for white women who had fallen on hard times, who were considered to have been morally and sexually pure. They had, you know, widowed or abandoned. They weren't women who were having sex, you know, in ways that they shouldn't be having sex. They weren't women who were um, doing anything wrong, quote unquote. They were people who deserved aid. And that was who it was for, and it was not for anyone else. And so you see this resistance um, to these programs, I think, in part because they do benefit low-income women. They do benefit low-income women of color and children of color. And that, in particular, 
you know, things that would lower the maternal mortality rate. Um, these different things are just not being advocated for at all. Um, but instead, they're advocating for a ban on abortions, which we've already seen has been having like very dire effects on um, women who uh, now no longer have even the limited access that they had before. I wonder what impact you think the Dobbs decision and new state-level restrictions on reproductive care will have on the health of women and babies, and also on the way that we talk about both motherhood and sexual morality. Yeah, I think we've already seen that there have been some very profound, very specific consequences for, you know, we've seen these news stories, these horror stories about women who are in the hospital unable to treat, um, you know, to receive the best practices for a non-viable fetus. Um, we've seen horror stories about, you know, children who have become pregnant who are no longer able or had to, you know, travel great distances and be open to public spectacle and shaming um, because they needed these services. So, you know, we've seen also that in addition, these sorts of laws um, in many places in this country are shutting down clinics that, you know, they do provide abortion services, but they're also providing a suite of essential services, um, medical services that are otherwise not available. And so the closures of these clinics is going to have and has had profound effects on maternal and child health simply because they provide so many more resources than just abortion services. Um, And since Dobbs, you know, we've seen the horror stories, as I was just speaking about, um, but we're also seeing a real crisis between the patient-physician relationship, right? Because not only are, you know, we've seen some very, there's much confusion about what you can and cannot share with your, you know, provider, physician in certain states and what you have to hide. And can you answer this question about whether or not um, you got your period last week or three weeks ago? Like, what information should you keep to yourself now? And in the midst of all of this confusion, there are providers who are unable to provide their patients with the best practices, with the best clinical judgment, um, because the state has become a part of these conversations. It has inserted itself between a patient and its provider, and that has profound consequences. And to get to your qu- question about how we'll talk about sexuality and, and morality, I think, you know, we've seen in other circumstances, like the, the backlash to COVID-19, the idea that someone had would be asked to disclose their own vaccination status, was decried as this violation of HIPAA. It was such a violation of personal privacy and autonomy. And like, it's not a violation of HIPAA. But this outcry shows, you know, the real difference between these two reactions is because this is about a healthcare decision that is brought on by sex, right, and sexuality. And so I think what we're seeing here is a very, you know, explicit look at what they understood women's roles to be, how women are supposed to feel about pregnancy, how they're supposed to feel about maternity and being a mother, uh, how they're supposed to sacrifice themselves for their families. All of these very gendered ideas about the role of reproduction as sort of all-encompassing for women's health in general. Um, These things are going to become more and more explicit as we start to relitigate what protections women um, deserve, you know, quote unquote, deserve to have and um, where they belong and where they don't belong. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of discussions about worthiness to aid, worthiness to care, worthiness to um, make decisions about, you know, whether one wants to have a child or not. All of these things are going to become more explicitly about um, women's sexual morality and their um, role as childbearers. Um, much, much more. It's always been the case, but much, much more now that we're actually explicitly having these conversations in the wake of um, the fall of Roe. From the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, this has been Colloquy. 
This podcast is an extension of the GSAS magazine of the same name. You can find a transcript of the show, as well as past episodes, at the GSAS website, gsas.harvard.edu slash colloquy hyphen podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher so that others can find it as well. And be sure to visit the 150th anniversary page on the school's website, gsas.harvard.edu slash 150, for more stories of inquiry, innovation, and impact, including the way that one graduate is using laser physics to accelerate the development of personalized medicine. I'm Paul Masari. See you next time.